Luke chapter 8. Now I'd like to begin reading in verse 22. Luke chapter 8, verse number 22. Uh, we'll read down to verse number 26. The Bible says, Now it came to pass on a certain day that he, Jesus, went into a ship with his disciples. And he said unto them, Let us go forth, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. And they launched forth. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And there came down a storm of wind on the lake. And they were filled with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we perish. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said unto them, Where is your faith? And they, being afraid, wondered, saying one to another, What manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him. And they arrived at the country of the Gadarenes, which is over against Galilee. Let's stop there and pray. Father, Lord, I'm so thankful for the Wednesday night prayer meeting. I'm thankful that we get to gather in this place and gain encouragement from one another. Lord, how sweet it is just to be reminded in the midst of difficult weeks and difficult times that we have a group of believers that loves us and loves you. And Lord, that we can gain encouragement and strength one from another. I pray for these requests that have been given. Certainly my mind would fail me, Lord, even to remember one or two of the cards. But, Lord, there's not been a single request mentioned that has fallen to the ground. Lord, your ears have taken up every one of them, and your heart has filed every one of them, and your hands are carefully dealing in every one of them. And I pray that you'd help us to be persistent and diligent in our prayer life and in our faith. Lord, help us to trust you in these matters. Give us patience and help us to let patience have her perfect work as you work these matters in our life. And help us to see your hand in them, Lord. Help us to trust your heart in them. Lord, help us to praise you for your goodness and grace when you answer. Lord, I pray that you would be with the preaching now over the next few moments. I pray that Christ would be magnified. And I pray that you'd be pleased with everything said and done. Lord, encourage us in your word and draw us closer unto thee. Father, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Luke chapter number 8 details for us one of the more familiar miracles that the Lord Jesus performed during his earthly ministry. We often will call it the calming of the storm or the calming of the sea. And there were actually multiple times that the Lord performed a very similar miracle. Often when you read through the gospel accounts, if you're not careful with the details, you'll conflate and confuse the different occasions. But three different times this miracle is recorded in the Word of God, meaning this exact instance is recorded in the Word of God. In all of the synoptic gospels, uh, it's one of, by the way, only a handful of miracles that are recorded in all of the synoptic gospels. Sounds to me like God wants us to pay attention to it. Seems to me like God wants us to draw something from it. And when we read about this miracle that the Lord performed, I'm interested in the questions that the Lord asks his disciples whenever he confronts them about their faithlessness. Now, this portion of the word of God is plain enough. We'll not go back through every detail. But whenever they come to him and cry unto him, they awaken him out of his slumber and say, Lord, carest thou not that we perish? He rebukes the storm, and then he turns around and rebukes them. Can I say very often in our life, uh, right after he rebukes the storm, at least it's true for me, a lot of times he has to rebuke me as well. Yeah. I wish it could be said that I always comport myself in a way that is pleasing to him and glorifying to him in the midst of the storms of life. But if I was to be honest with you, I'd have to admit there's been a great more times that it's took more to calm me down than it took to calm the storm down. And it's took more to get me right than it took to get the waves right. 
And so the Lord turns and he begins to rebuke them. He begins to chasten them. And he does so with a series of questions. Now, you've often heard me say this, but I will emphasize it again tonight, that the Lord only ever asks rhetorical questions. A rhetorical question is not a question that's meant to gain an answer for the person that's asking. But rather, it's a question that a person that already knows the answer asks, that it might be considered and weighed either by the person being asked or by the people that are standing around and listening to the conversation. You see, an omniscient God can only ask rhetorical questions. He never needs to know the answer. He always knows the answer. And so when he asks these questions, he is probing their heart and their life, and he's asking them to stop and consider what went wrong in their response to this storm. In Matthew's account, in Matthew 8.26, he asks this question, Why are you fearful? Boy, I tell you, if ever there was a question for the day, that's the question. Why are you fearful? Not because there aren't things in life to fear or things that a rational mind would fear, but because we as saved, born-again believers that's nested in the providential hand of an almighty God resting upon His everlasting arms, we have nothing to fear. You know, even in the midst of the storm, we don't have anything to fear. Even when the world is shaking down around us, we have nothing to fear. When the underpinnings of this earth seem to be falling out from under our feet, we are resting on something more eternal than this earth's foundation, and we have no reason to fear. He asks, why are ye fearful? And then in Mark's account, he asks this question. How is it that ye have no faith? It's interesting, on one of the occasions that our Lord calmed an angry uh, sea, the Bible points out to us that the reason the disciples had responded in faithlessness is because their hearts were hardened and they had not considered the miracle of the loaves. Whenever Christ broke the loaves and fed the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes. And he asked them here in Mark's account of this same miracle, how is it that you have no faith? In other words, with all you've seen me do... How is it possible that you cannot trust me? If ever there was an indicting question against my life and against many of our lives, it's that question. Truly, God could look at me, and, and I'll just preach at me for a moment. He could look at me and say, Toby, how is it that you have no faith? How is it possible after I've saved you, after I've redeemed you, after I've transformed you, after I have met need after need and performed miracle after miracle in your life, after I've guided you and blessed you and protected you, how is it possible that you could have no faith? I would say this, that you and I have been more the beneficiaries of God's goodness than the disciples ever were. I don't know about you, and listen, you may be just freshly minted, just born again. Uh, you may have not seen God do much, but I'll tell you for me, I mean, listen, I, I've, I've been saved for 25 years, and I've seen God do far more in my life than He ever did in the three and a half years He walked with them. How is it possible that you have no faith? But I want you to notice the question that's asked in our text tonight, because I think it really gets to the heart of the other two questions. Matthew says, why are ye fearful? Mark says, how is it that ye have no faith? But our Lord says in Luke's account, verse 25, where is your faith? Now that's an interesting question. It sort of implies two perspectives. One, he could be saying, you have no faith and you should have faith, so why is there an absence of faith? But, you know, when you begin to think about our lives and when you begin to examine 
the behavior of the disciples here, I think there's another way in which we could understand that question. You know, the truth of the matter is, everything in life is really an exercise of faith in one way or another. When you got up this morning, you rolled out of bed and put your feet on a floor that you trusted would be there. Uh, whenever you put your clothes on, you trusted they'd hang together. And for some of us, that's really a leap of faith. Amen. You got in that car and spun that ignition uh, stick and, and you trusted that it was going to start. You got out on the road and you trusted people would observe the traffic laws. You came here tonight to Walridge Baptist Church and you trusted, one, that you had remembered the right day of the week and it was, in fact, Wednesday. And number two, you trusted that everybody else remembered, too, and they'd be here as well. We sit here tonight as an exercise of faith. You trust that pew will hold you up. You trust that this roof will stay up above us and not collapse down upon us. You see, the reality is we are creatures of faith. Life is an exercise of faith. The question is not, do we have faith? The question is, what are we putting our faith in? The problem with the disciples on this evening was not an absence of faith necessarily. Certainly there was an absence of faith in the right thing. But they had faith, but here was the problem. The problem was a misplacement of faith. Can I tell you that your ability to weather the storms of life will be directly connected to what you put your faith in? I would say that there's a great many people that have been saved, born again, and whenever they, they trusted in Christ, they truly trusted in Christ, they put their faith in Him. And I'm glad we don't have to maintain a, an unbroken record of doctrinal integrity to get to heaven, aren't you? Because there's been plenty of times that I've doubted Him. There's been days I've woke up and I didn't feel saved. There's been days I've woke up I didn't act saved. There's days that I've woke up and and the way that I was, if I was God, I wouldn't have let me be saved. But none of that is what my salvation is predicated on, but rather the fact that I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ and then He saved me. He did a saving work. It's not my faith in Him that saves me. It is His grace that saves me. But I access that grace by having placed my faith in him. So I think there's a great many people that they believed on the Lord. They've been born again. But somewhere along the line, they began to put their faith in the wrong things in life. I tell you, we all lament how crazy the world's gotten over the past few years. And I do, too. It's frustrating. I understand that. But there's been some benefit to it as well, man. There's some things we had had faith in that we all of a sudden have learned we can't have faith in. We had faith in a monetary system. We had faith in a medical system. We had faith in a legal system. We had faith in all these things and, 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 and systematically one route after another, like dominoes, the, the credibility of those things has just tumbled. And we began to learn, man, there's not as much you can trust in as we thought there was. And the disciples here on this night, it's not that they were acting without faith. We all act and behave with faith. But the trouble was with what they had put their faith in. I want you to notice three things that they could have trusted in on this night. I won't presume to necessarily suggest that they trusted in this or that. All I can say is they didn't put their trust in the right place. But when they're entering this storm, there's sort of three things that they can trust to get them through this storm in life. And I will tell you in your life, you will experience storms. And so you better learn who to put your faith in and how to trust him and how to experience those storms for the glory of God. You know, as I thought about it, I thought about the first thing they could have trusted in. The Lord Jesus comes to them and, and he says in verse number 22, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. 
And the term lake here is is an interesting term because we think of lakes, we think of Douglas and Cherokee and Norris and, and Fort Loudon and lakes like that. But what's being described here is the Sea of Galilee. And it's not just a small little regional lake like we would be familiar with. It was the kind of thing that if you stood on one bank, you couldn't see to the other bank. It was a vast body of water. It was a place that had great depths and it was a place that had great dangers. And the Lord comes to them and says, let's get in the boat and go to the other side. Now, anytime anybody got in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, they were taking their life into their own hands. It was a perilous and dangerous water. And you imagine as they climbed on this boat, knowing that storms could arise at any time and knowing that there were many occasions that they had found themselves jeoparded and in perilous uh, circumstances, they must have been trusting something. And I thought, you know, maybe some of them that got in the boat, maybe they had faith in the weather. Say, so what do you mean, preacher? Well, maybe they trusted that the storms would not arrive, that they would not touch their location. You know, the language that's given in this passage makes it clear that the storm, as was often the case on the Sea of Galilee, violent and sudden storms would arise seemingly out of nowhere. And the, the, the text seems to imply to us that it was bright, sunny days, clear skies, that there was no reason for them to anticipate a storm because the Bible describes the storm as, as storm is coming down on them, as sweeping down upon them. And probably when they climbed in that boat, uh, experienced fishermen that they were, they probably looked to the skies and thought it looks like a good day to go sailing. You know, in many ways, their faith in the weather, it reminds me of people's very often misplaced faith in this matter of life itself. I tell you, a lot of people go through life and the reason they succumb to the weight and to the violent pressure of the storms is because they never envisioned or imagined that they would go through a storm in the first place. How would they have put their faith in the weather? Well, they might have trusted the forecast. They might have looked around and said, it's all clear now. There's no reason to believe that a storm will arise. I've lived long enough, and I've not lived a long time, but I've lived long enough, and many of you have as well to know this. It can start out bright and sunny in the morning, and it can be thunder and lightning and storms by the evening. I don't just mean in a meteorological sense. I mean, your life and how many times can you look back on your life and remember days that started with all the promise that somebody could imagine only to end in pieces. See, here's the reality. A lot of people go through life just expecting that it's never going to happen to them. And they look at their life. You know, we, we could describe and talk about fair weather Christians, people that will serve God when things are going well in their life. But, you know, life has a way of disabusing us of that attitude because the fact is things can be nice today and they can be torment tonight. If you're just anticipating that somehow your life is so charmed and so blessed and so good that storms cannot touch you and arrive in your life, I'm sorry you are naive, you are misguided, and you are trusting in the wrong thing. Truth of the matter is, it could be any of us. Often I'm struck by this thought when I walk through hospitals and visit people. You know, most hospitals that you go into, or maybe it's just the way I go into them, I oftentimes will have to pass through the emergency room. And how many heart-rendering scenes do you see in there of people? And you can see just sort of a blank, stunned look on their, on their eyes. Well, why? They didn't plan on being there. They didn't plan on being there. Particularly, you see young people very often in an emergency room and they're crying and they're weeping and they're, they're, they're in anguish. Why? They didn't expect to be there. And I can tell you that some of the storms in my life have come on days when everything looked fair and simple and easy. 
And then all of a sudden, things went to pieces. You know, they might have been trusting in the forecast of the weather. And then I thought about this. You know, they might have been trusting in the fairness of the weather. They say, well, what do you mean, preacher? Well, the justness of it. You know, a lot of people have this sort of cosmic attitude towards life. A lot of Eastern mystic religion has crept into Christianity that a lot of people don't realize it has. Concepts like karma and concepts uh, like, you know, the justness of the universe or mother nature or the universe as an entity. But can I tell you this? The reality is the uh, rain, it falls on the just and the unjust. And the clouds gather around the righteous and the unrighteous. And if life was a matter of fairness, well, there's a few things I'd say. One, if life was a matter of fairness, we'd all be in hell. But number two, I would say this, that if life was a matter of fairness, I couldn't reckon with the things I've seen in this world. I've seen people go through things that I couldn't imagine anyone deserving, and they, least of all, were deserving of it. And then I've seen others that have snubbed their nose at God and lived in rank rebellion and and obstinance and disobedience who have been in a temporal sense blessed in unbelievable ways. See, the truth is only heaven is their justice in, and only heaven is going to set these things right. And if your perspective is, well, hard times won't come to my life because I'm a good person, that's a naive perspective. Suffering comes to righteous people. Suffering comes to kind people. Suffering comes to people with good hearts and good attitudes and good dispositions. And, you know, maybe they got on there and they thought, well, the storm won't come to us. We're disciples. We're good people. We're believers in God. But, you know, the storm is no respecter of persons. And the fact is, storms, even if you're a what you might call a good person, storms will come into your life. Now I thought about this, you know, maybe they thought and trusted in the favorability of the weather. You say, well, what do you mean, preacher? Well, maybe they thought, well, it's just impossible. We, we've been through so many storms ourselves. We've experienced so much ourselves. We're due a, we're due a break. We're due a, an easy time. And maybe God will be merciful and will not allow this storm. To arise in our lives. I will tell you this. Your theology will be twisted inside and out. And turned around one side to the other. If you interpret God through the circumstances of your life. As believers. And we preached about this the other day. As believers we have to learn how to interpret our circumstances. Through what we know of the character of God. Because if we define the character of God through our circumstances. Hey Job would have been a a, a cursed infidel. Hey listen a great many. Paul would have cursed God. Uh, a great many people in the in the Bible would have been angry and bitter and would have had a complete wrong perception of God. Now, you say, well, preacher, you just don't want me to be angry at God. No, I don't want you to be wrong about God. You listening? I don't want you to be wrong about God. If you interpret who God is through your circumstances, it's not just that you might get angry at him. It's that you will not understand him for who he is. And they might have thought to themselves, well, Surely the storm will not come and destroy us. God will be merciful. The weather will be favorable. Surely it will not come to us. If they put their faith in the weather, they put it in the wrong place. But then I thought of a second thing they might have put their faith in. They might have not been trusting in the weather. They might have been fishermen enough to understand and have sailed those waters often enough to know that you just had no guarantee when you pushed that boat away from shore. You had no promise that you were going to have smooth waters. But they could have been trusting in something else. They could have trusted in the weather, but they also could have been trusting in the vessel. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, they could have been trusting in the boat. 
In other words, the weather being the circumstances that surrounded them reminds me of life. But the vessel being the, the, the entity that they were contained within, it sort of reminds me of people depending on self as having the ability to face the storms that life may bring. Now, this is a very popular perspective in modern society. We live in a society that sort of, uh, you know, lauds and applauds the idea of, of rugged individualism and independence and, and the ability to pull oneself up by your own bootstraps and, and do things your own way. And I will say that in certain contexts, I certainly believe that we ought to be able between us and the Lord to face anything in life. We don't need the government to help us do it. Uh, we don't need the community to help us do it. We don't need charity to help us do it. Uh, But in regards to individualism away from the person and reliance upon God, I'm here to tell you, hey, listen, if you're trusting in self, you're trusting in the wrong thing. They could have thought, well, you know, even if a storm comes up, we'll be able to handle it. The boat will handle it. We know what to do. We are smart enough. We are strong enough. We are capable. And there's a great many people, even believers walking through life, who their attitude is, whatever comes up, I'm I'm enough. I'm strong enough. Man, life has a way of making you learn that lesson in an expensive, painful way. I wonder what they might have thought. Well, they might have had faith in the soundness of this vessel. They might have thought this is a good boat. This is a sturdy boat. And the waves will not be able to shake it apart. It's interesting the way that Mark describes this storm. He says this in Mark 4.37, there arose a great storm of wind and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. What is implied there is that it literally began to shake the ship apart. It hit it so hard that it began to crack it. It began to fracture it. It began to burst it apart. In fact, I preached on this passage before in sort of the missed miracle. The missed miracle here is not just that he calmed the storm, but he kept the boat afloat because the Bible says it was breaking apart and it was full of water, but it did not sink. But here in Mark's account, here's what he says. The boat wasn't strong enough for the waves that beat against. Uh, You know, it's a painful thing to learn in life to have to come to terms with the fact that strong as though you may think you are, there are things in life that can break you. There are things you may think, oh, not me, not me. I, I've got a will of iron. I, I've got a constitution of iron. Nothing would be able to break me. But there's things you'll experience in life that will snap you in two, shatter your world into a million pieces, break your heart into dust and into powder. And very often in life, and that's, by the way, a lot of the reason that often as people age in life, with wisdom often comes a certain measure of timidity or anxiety. It's not unfounded. You know, uh, Solomon talks about it in the book of Ecclesiastes. He, he talks about in old age people being to a place where, where things scare them and trouble them and where things are a burden to them that weren't when they were young. It's not because they became cowards. It's because they became wise enough to realize that life is a minefield we're all walking through. Oftentimes as they get older, they realize how precarious this life truly is. You say, well, preacher, how do we face that and handle it? Well, we face it with with trust in the Lord. But oftentimes in youth, we have too much hubris and too much flat out stupidity to realize how dangerous this life is. You understand, I mean, just a moment, one phone call in your world could be in pieces. And that boat that you thought was strong enough to face any storm can be shipwrecked. I'd say they were probably, they might have been trusting in the soundness of it. 
But then, you know, Matthew's account is interesting. I thought about this. They might have not only been trusting that the boat would hold together, but they might have been trusting that the boat was built well enough that not only would it hold together, but it would keep the waves out from the side of the boat. See, it doesn't matter how strong a boat is if it gets filled with water. It's going to sink all except for this boat because of the Lord's miraculous presence. And so we could say this. They might have been trusting not only in the soundness of it, but in the safety of it. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, trusting that it was safe enough that the waves would not touch them. It's funny. We have this perspective that that Christianity and Bible faith is a matter of making ourselves invulnerable to life's problems. And the opposite is, in fact, the truth. It's not becoming so strong that we don't need the Lord. It's rather embracing and accepting our weakness to such depths that we desperately need the Lord. It's not looking and saying, through God, I'm strong enough that nothing ever touches my life. Rather, it's saying, in my weakness and infirmity, all of the waves come crashing in on me, but in His grace, He helps me and He strengthens me. And if your attitude of of life and if your attitude of Christianity is to maintain such a self-image that nothing ever affects you and nothing ever touches you, it will break your mind. You'll get to a place where you either, one, become a rank hypocrite that can't even be honest with God, or two, it'll literally fracture your faith. You'll have a crisis of faith because you won't be able to reckon the, the crippling anxiety you feel inward with the reality and truth of God's word as it's stated. It's far better instead of saying, well, the waves can never touch me, to say, you know, even when the waves touch me, God can keep me from sinking. I see that they could have trusted in the soundness of it and the safety of it. But, you know, and by the way, I didn't read it. I I, I mentioned a moment ago neglected to read it. But Matthew's account says this in Matthew 8, 24, says the ship was covered with waves. And you may say, well, it won't touch me. Sooner or later, it'll cover you up. But then I would say this. They might have been trusting in the sailing of the ship. Now, admittedly, this little departure from trusting in the boat itself, but they might have thought to themselves, I mean, these are these are experienced fishermen, mind you. They know boats, they know vessels, they know sails, they know that they know rudders, they know how to sail a boat. And they might have looked at it and said this, it's a good boat and it's a true boat. And coupled with my knowledge and ability, whatever storm arrives, I'll be able to sail my way through it. I'll tell you, the age of sail is a fascinating thing. If you ever take time and study it and, and look at the, the, the knowledge that it took to sail a ship. I mean, it's unreal. You had to account for the def- different angles and, and directions that the wind would come and the weight of the ship and the waves and the current. And I mean, it's just, it's a remarkable feat of, of, of human ingenuity, engineering and ingenuity that they were ever able to navigate around in these sailing ships. And we often look at men like Peter and John and think, well, they're fishermen, they're ignorant people. But the truth is, I mean, there's people walking around with with more degrees than a thermometer that couldn't have done what these men could do. They could have looked at themselves and said, you know, we've got this. We've got this. I've sailed this before, man. We've got this. I've met I've met storms before. We've got this. Can I tell you one of the perils that comes with experience? is thinking we've got this. Well, I survived the last storm, so I don't need the Lord to get through this storm. I know, I've been through it. Man, funny thing about it, I wonder how many storms they'd been through, and yet this one they were ill-equipped for. 
You know why? God ensures that the storms that arrive in our lives produce an effectual dependence upon him. He will never so well equip us that we don't need him. You might be waiting for your Christianity to become cultivated enough and perfected enough such that you don't really need to lean on him day by day. But I'm sorry to disappoint you. God will never make you such a great Christian that you don't need Christ. You will always need him effectually day by day. And they might have thought to themselves, well, you know, if a if a storm shows up, we've sailed through storms before. We can sail through this one. And often we will say when problems arise, and, and maybe it's well-meaning, maybe we're intending to give God credit for the way that he has has ministered to us and, and, and equipped us. But, but, but if we're not careful, we'll allow pride to lead us to believe that we in our own strength and in our own wisdom and in our own knowledge and in the fortitude of our own personalities and of our own minds mind can weather these things the fact is you're going to need him for every storm you're going to need him for every sunny day you're going to need him for every snow you're going to need him for every moment they could have thought well we can just sail it but it's interesting you know you would imagine that a competent sailor would have seen this storm and sailed around found a way to avoid it but the bible says this in our text there came down a storm of wind on the lake in other words it wasn't there one moment And it was there the next. No doubt they were stunned by how quickly it had all changed. So what did they put their faith in? He says, where is your faith? Well, they might have put it in the weather. They might have put it in the vessel. But I'll tell you where they should have put their faith. You know the answer. They should have put their faith in the master. You see, the problem was that they were trusting a what instead of a who. And the problem was that they were trusting the weather and they were trusting self and they were trusting all manner of things. When all the while they had everything they needed if they had just put their faith in the right person. What would have changed things for them? Well, I think it would have changed if they had put faith in the master and his promise. Did you notice what he says in verse 22? He does not say, let us get in and sail around the lake. He does not say, let's begin a journey. He says this, let us go over unto the other side of the lake. You know what the right response would have been in the midst of that storm? He put us on this boat and promised to take us off this boat. So whatever happens in between, I know he'll keep his promise and I know we'll be okay. One of the great, wonderful things about walking within the will of God. And listen, being in the will of God does not mean you're spared of every problem, of every danger in life. But one of the great and wonderful things that we can trust in when we're walking in his will is that if he set us about a course, he will walk that course with us. He will not abandon us. I will tell you, you're going to need the promises of God in your life when the storms arise. They could have trusted in the master and his promise. Also, they could have trusted in the master and his presence. It's interesting. The Lord goes down into the bottom of the boat and goes to sleep. You want to know what God thinks about storms? You want to know if they make him nervous? He goes down and goes to sleep. And they go and they cry to him and they say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Master, save us, save us. And I wonder if it ever occurred to any of them until years later that the thing they were panicking on, if it had killed them, it would have had to have killed God himself. His very presence in the boat negated the ability of the storm to scuttle that ship. There was no way while he was on that boat that it was going to sink. You know, it's funny that I think really more than anything probably is what is implied by our Lord chastening them. 
I can sort of imagine it in my mind as he wakes up and rubs the sleep out of his eyes and, and looks at them. And they're saying, we're, we're perishing, we're dying, we're dying. And I would imagine he just looked at him and thought, to kill you, it'd have to kill me. If I can lay down and sleep in the midst of this, then why can't you trust in the midst of this? You know, oftentimes we get angry at God because he's sleeping in our storm. Instead of just taking a moment and asking, you know, if God's so unconcerned about this storm that he would sleep in it, then why am I so upset in it? You say, well, preacher, what do you mean sleep? Well, oftentimes God will be seemingly absent, seemingly silent, seemingly idle. We'll cry out to God, God, I'm troubled, I'm burdened, I'm broken, fix it, change it, master, save us, we perish. Never taking a moment to say, you know, evidently God thinks there's enough time or he would be working urgently. Maybe I can trust him in his presence. I think they could have trusted the master in his promise and his presence. They could have trusted the master in his pity. You know, it's interesting. One of the things they accuse him of, they say, master, carest thou not that we perish? How many times do we foolishly charge God and say he doesn't love us? I'm guilty of it. I know you're too spiritual. You ain't ever guilty of it. That's fine. Pray for your preacher because I'm guilty of it. Sometimes I'll look at God. I don't, I don't out and say it like that. God, you don't love me. But I will try to sometimes reconcile and interpret his love through the light of my circumstances instead of the other way around. And sometimes I'll look at it and say, you know, if God really loved me, why am I going through this? The better thing to say would be this. I'm going through this and I know God loves me. So what does that say about what I'm going through? They said, carest thou not? They knew he cared. It, 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 listen, when their feet were on solid ground, they knew he cared. When the sun was shining, they knew he cared. So why would he care any less when the waves are tossing them about? Why would he care any less when the clouds are gathered? The fact is, he loves you even when things are going well and even when they're falling apart. And they could have trusted in his pity. They could have trusted in the master and his power. Uh, they actually talk about that in verse 25. And this quote is found uh, almost identically in all three of the synoptic gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They say, what manner of man is this? For he commandeth even the winds and water, and they obey him. Now, that's an interesting statement. I don't know why, but evidently in their mind, there was a distinction between calling someone back from the brink of death and calming this storm. Evidently, there was a distinction between turning the water into wine and calming this storm. Evidently, there was a distinction between opening the eyes of the blind and calming this storm. And you say, well, preacher, what's the distinction? I mean, if he could do all those things, why were they shocked that he could do this thing? I was talking to, we've had several folks have surgery lately, and uh, the doctor's insurance been running out of money. And so everybody's been having to have surgery to keep them afloat. And um, so I, several po- folks have been having surgery. And I always, when I talk to them, I said this to Brother Jay the other day, I was talking to him. We always say, well, this is routine. And the word routine has a distinctly different taste depending on whether you are in the bed or out of the bed. You know, I'll tell you this, man, when you're laying in that bed and they're getting ready to cut on you, ain't nothing routine. I mean, it it, it don't matter. They're they're taking your temperature and you want you want to see their diploma. Ain't nothing routine when it's you laying in the bed. You say, preacher, what was the difference? Well, the difference is this. They had no trouble imagining he could heal somebody's blind eyes, somebody's lame legs, somebody's disease, somebody's sickness. 
But it was all different when they were in the middle of the storm. You see, when you're going through it, sometimes, man, you just lose sight of what you know to be true. What God has proven to be true. He had given plenty enough. And I don't think the Lord is 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 unkind or or unreasonable when he says, how is it that you have no faith? Because he had proven time and again that he had the ability. It wasn't they needed more proof. It was that they needed more faith in the right person. They could have trusted in his power. And I will tell you this. God's done bigger things than what you need him to do. You listening? God's done bigger things than what you need him to do. Probably there's not a person in this room that if they were pressed to answer, couldn't name at least one thing they need God to do in their life. I could name several things that if God doesn't do it, it won't get done. And I need God to do these things in my life. I'm praying actively. And not a one of us has the greatest, biggest, most difficult thing that God's ever done as our top number one need. Every one of us, God's done bigger things than what we need him to do in our life. They could have trusted in the master and his power. And then finally, and I'm done, they could have trusted in the master and his providence. Very simply, they could have just said this. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. He put us on this boat. He's got a plan. He allowed this storm to arise. Here's here's the uncomfortable truth that they had to come to terms with. After they saw him calm the storm and realize he was God enough to calm the storm, they had to come to terms with the fact that he was God enough that he called for the storm. And I'll tell you, one of the things that's difficult about seeing him calm our storm is realizing if he's God enough to do that, then he must have been the God that called for that storm. And in light of all of it, after the soil's dried out and the boat is has been emptied of water, and after the nets have dried out and their clothes have gotten good and dry, they had to sit there and sit back and say, you know, it's like he had a plan the whole time. It's like he knew what he was doing the whole time. How many times have you sat back and said, it's like he knew what he was doing the whole time. I can't explain to you how that's going to happen in your life in all of your individual distinct situations. I can just tell you I know God enough to know that's how he works. And in your life, there'll come a day you'll look back at this very storm you're going through. And I'm not saying you'll be able to see good in everything that happened. But you will be able to look back and say, you know, God had a plan in all of that. Some of the things I might have to get to heaven before I fully understand, but I can see God was working. And nothing that happened was a product of karma. Nothing that happened was a product of misfortune or bad luck or pure chance. But a providential God reigned supreme over every bit of it. Here's what they could have said. They could have said this. They could have said, hey, he promised we'd make it to the other side. Let's trust his promise. They could have said, he's in this boat. It ain't going to sink. Not while he's here. And hey, by the way, when you got born again, Christ took up residence in your life through the person of the Holy Spirit. They could have said, he loves us too much. Let us die this way. And I will tell you this way. Nothing for the believer is done outside of the parameters of God's love. They could have looked at it and said, he has the power to calm this storm. When he's ready for it to be calm, he can calm it. And they could have looked at it and said, he always has had a plan. Has it ever dawned on you that God's never been without a plan? You understand that the very the very instigation of the march of time was in response to God having a plan. Before before time ever began, God had a plan. That's why time began. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. There's never been a time he hasn't had a plan. So you may not have a plan. I'm often without a plan. But God always has a plan. So here's the question. You're going to trust something in this storm. 
Wouldn't you rather trust that which makes the difference? Wouldn't you rather trust him who has the ability and the power? Wouldn't you rather trust him? Rather than trust the weather, rather than trust the vessel, rather than trust self, rather than trust all manner of failing different things, wouldn't you rather trust in him who's never failed and never lied? Trust in him in the midst of what you're going through. Let's bow together tonight. Musician's going to play. I'm going to have a word of prayer. But I, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to the word that's been preached tonight. You may be going through a storm right now. You may be coming out of one. Uh, you may be headed into one. But I'll tell you, whatever you're facing, he's a trustworthy God and you can trust him. So why don't you resolve? You say, well, pre- preacher, I'm saved. I'm a Christian. Yeah, but are you trusting in him? Preacher, I, I, the Lord's done miracle after miracle. In my, yeah, but are you trusting in him? Preacher, I know the Lord's perfect. Yeah, but are you trusting in him? Won't you come down tonight, commit your heart to trust in him through the midst of what you're going through. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.